All right, what's going on, guys? So today I'm sitting down with Greg Knuckles, and we're going to be talking about understanding and interpreting research. Now, this is something that uh, I've found pretty interesting myself, and I think a lot of people who are more interested in uh, kind of getting a little bit more informed about what's going on, the direction of sports science, and even just kind of nutrition, would like to be able to kind of read and interpret some of these studies a little bit better than just kind of reading the abstract. And so today, Greg's going to kind of give us a little bit of a, a rundown of some of the prerequisites and hopefully can be a little bit better equipped to, uh, to kind of dive into this and develop it as a skill. So first off, Greg, I just want to say thanks for jumping on the episode, man. Um, it's good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Would you be able to give yourself a little bit of an introduction for maybe some people who aren't uh, familiar with you and some of the work you've been doing? Uh, sure. So, uh, my name's Greg. Uh, I'm from North Carolina, uh, 29 years old. I, uh, I lift weights, coach some people, um, sometimes blog about lifting weights, uh, sometimes podcast about lifting weights and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's me. Awesome. And you're also a master of what is it? Arts? Fine arts. <laughs> is, is that uh, yeah, you're... yeah. I've got a, I've got an MA in exercise physiology. Honestly, they did us dirty with that at a, a UNC. The way their like designation of Master of Arts versus Master of Science works is um, like how many in class science classes do you take uh, as part of the degree program, uh, and at UNC it's all about research. Like the actual like class part is minimized. So you can just spend all of your time in the lab, like actually conducting research. Um, and so as a result, we did too, too much science for it to be an MS, um, which whatever, I don't care, but I, I, I just find that ironic. That makes perfect sense. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it is what it is. So to, to dive right into it, um, what, uh, what are some of the prerequisites that you recommend prior to kind of diving into research and, and deciding to actually read some of the original studies? Um, I mean, I, I would say the only true prerequisite is a adequate grasp of the English language because most research is published in English. Um, and I mean, as long as you got that, you can start getting your feet wet. Um, when I started reading research, I had, so I, I went into undergrad as a history major and um, had not transferred to exercise science yet. Um, and so like, I, I didn't have any scientific background whatsoever other than just like classes I took in high school. Um, so, I mean, I, I was as blank of a slate as one could be. Um, and yeah, when I started reading research, like looking back at some of the things I took away from studies, I was very bad at it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a skill just like anything else. Like, uh, you know, the, the more of a background you have in something general before you try to transfer to something specific, the quicker you'll be able to pick up on it. Um, and I mean, like, you know, if you, if you've taken a graduate degree in any type of science, you'll, you'll probably take a class, uh, about how to read and interpret research. And I mean, ha having some sort of formal education certainly helps, 
but I don't think that I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I think uh, as long as you as long as you can read the language, um, you you can start getting your feet wet. So I, I would say that that's the only true prerequisite. And so to build on that, then what are some of the things that are a good idea to I guess increase the precision of your actual interpretation of what they're saying, and then being able to kind of overlap that with hey, like. The conclusion says this, but their findings kind of say this, like that obviously it's a little bit more in depth, but what are some of the things you kind of need to be able to grasp to be able to kind of make those, like to identify that in, in the study? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you what I did and then I'll tell you what I should have done. Um, I was incredibly overconfident. And so I would read stuff, thought I had a pretty good grasp of it. Uh, write about it, put that out into the world. And then people who knew much more than I did said, Hey, that's bad. You're, you're very dumb and full of shit. Uh, here's what you should have done instead and should have taken away from that. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I mostly learned uh, research interpretation through, through trial and error and just putting bad takes out into the world. Um, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend. Um, because then you're, you know, you, you will either be polluting the world with your bad takes and no one will correct you, or you, your education will be predicated on uh, uncompensated work from people who probably have better things to do with their time. Um, so there, there are uh, just like in, entry level textbooks you can buy on research methods. And I think that, like, I, I'm a big fan of textbooks. I think that people should read more textbooks. Like if, uh, if you, you know, if you're like a coach or personal trainer and you didn't go to school for exercise science, I, I think you can get most of what you would need out of a degree program. If you just buy like uh, exercise physiology and an anatomy and physiology textbook and, you're, and work your way through them uh, and make sure you actually understand the material. Like th those are by far the two most important classes you're going to take in a degree program. And, and I think you can get most of that information from textbooks. And I think research interpretation is pretty similar. Like there are, like if you understand research methods, which I, I think that there's definitely a distinction between book knowledge and experiential knowledge. Like there's, there's stuff that you're not going to fully understand unless you get in the lab and do research, which isn't a fair expectation of everyone, certainly. Um, but yeah, the, the basics, like you can learn from a textbook. And so I, I would recommend <laughs> reading a research methods textbook, um, which will cover a lot of that. The other thing that I think can be pretty beneficial is if you have a mentor of some sort, or if you're plugged into, um, like some sort of like research-based group on Facebook or some other social medium where people talk about research uh, and there's people in there discussing it who are probably more knowledgeable than you. I think it's probably kind of valuable to be a fly on the wall. And when someone posts a paper, pull it up, read it for yourself, see what you got out of it, and then check your interpretation against what people are saying who, who have a bit more experience with that than you do. Um, so I, I, I think that I would probably recommend doing that. The other thing that I would recommend, <laughs> which uh, this, this one's probably not going to go over that well, because I think 
no one actually wants to do this is like get a stats textbook um, and like learn the basics of statistics and how, and you don't need to know anything crazy for exercise science because like most of the research in our field uses pretty basic statistical procedures. But like, if you know how Pearson regression works, if you know how logistic regression works, if you know how t-tests work, you know how ANOVAs work, you know how multiple regression works, and you know how uh, like ANCOVAs and, and like covariance works, uh, you, you'll, you'll be just fine for probably 95% of the studies in the field. Um, but yeah, I mean, like ultimately... I think you can you can boil science down to four main things. So running a good study is about uh, can you develop a good research question and um, and design a good study to answer that question. Two is are you <laughs> are you competent at carrying out research? Like can you do a good job of collecting the actual data? And then three is, can, can you analyze it well? Like, do you understand stats well enough to appropriately analyze the data you correct or you collect? And I think if you can do those three things, you're, you can be a pretty good scientist. And I think that a lot of that is the same skills that go into research interpretation. So, you know, when you pull up a paper, first identify uh, what questions were being asked in the study. Like, what, what were they trying to investigate? Uh, did the methods they chose to investigate that, were, were they up to the task? Like, were, was it methodologically adequate? Um, you personally can't know whether they did a good job collecting the data. Um, <laughs> I mean, really the best you can do is just kind of assume that they did. And, and I mean, most people who do this professionally are, um, you know, pretty competent at that part of the, of the process. Uh, and then the last thing is check to see, did they analyze their data correctly? And oftentimes they didn't. And so that's where having at least like decent baseline statistical knowledge can help you out a lot. I, I think that that's where a lot of papers get into trouble. Like people just don't do a great job of analyzing the data they, they collect. Um, and so, I mean, if anything, I think that that's probably my biggest value add in the fitness industry. Um like, I mean, most, most people who are blogging about lifting, uh, who, you know, actually do read full text of studies and, and try to get into the whole evidence-based thing, a lot of folks just don't have much of a statistics background. Um, and I mean, like, I don't have as much as my partner, Eric Trexler, but uh, I mean, I, I think I understand that stuff better than most fitness bloggers. <laughs> and so I, I think that that's, one of the things that, that I bring to the table. So yeah, those are, those are, those are some of my general thoughts. Um, so yeah, read a, a basic like research interpretation textbook and read like an introductory stats textbook. And, and those two things are going to help you out a lot. And then just read a lot of research. Um, and to the best of your ability, try to check your interpretations against people who, who you perceive to you know, read and analyze research better than you do. Yeah, that was honestly like something that I struggled with uh, initially. And every now and then I still do struggle with it at times where when I started learning some of that stuff, I'd read a paper and I'd be like, I don't think this matches up, but they're professionals. And I'm like, so I'm probably wrong. And mm -hmm. then I'd like 
I don't know, I'd, I'd like ask a couple of people and they're like, oh yeah, no, they're wrong. And, and you're, you know, you're right. And I was like, oh, okay. And so that just made me second guess everything. And I was like, okay, well now I don't know what the fuck's going on. And so it, <laughs> it, it definitely took a quite a while to gain like a, I guess like a reasonable measure of confidence to actually be able to be like, okay, yeah, like I could, they did a good job here or, you know, this isn't necessarily match up or I don't know, whatever. But, um, mm-hmm. cause that, that was definitely a point for me where I was like, lacking the most amount of confidence was was in kind of reading some of the data sets that that they'd present but uh yeah so that makes a lot of sense so can you just give a rough breakdown of the different types of studies uh, like from from a higher google standpoint and just sort of outline the strengths and weaknesses of of each of those types of studies and like what you might use them for why a large sample size might be good and sometimes where in other studies, a smaller sample size might be good as well. Uh, sure. So yeah, that's that's a pretty wide. Very open big question. question. I know. <laughs> um, so yeah, w- when it comes to evaluating research, uh, a lot of times people will make uh, reference to something called the hierarchy of evidence, which is more of a guideline than just like rules that are set in stone. But I, I think it's a, a good conceptual framework. So. It's, uh, it's generally visualized as a pyramid, and at the very bottom is research that is still important to do, but is less directly generalizable to probably you and, and the people you train and work with. And then as you move further up the pyramid, it gets more directly relevant. Uh, you can more directly uh, imply or infer causation, uh, and it's probably going to be more useful, more applicable, more robust. And so at at the bottom of that pyramid, you have stuff like animal studies and in vitro research where, you know, maybe you're interested in some particular mechanism or you're interested in some particular gene. Uh, And so you like breed a cell line to have like some genetic mutation or just take like a normal representative cell line, but you can have full control over it and, you know, put like super physiological levels of some molecule or some hormone uh, in with those cells and like, see what happens in vitro, like in, in a Petri dish, or you like breed a line of mutant mice that have some sort of like gene deletion or modification to see like, Oh, what happens to, to mice who can't produce this particular protein? Cause the gene is fucked up. Um, and so that's, that's what we would generally call like basic science. And that stuff is, is important for, uh, you know, learning, how like signaling pathways work and whatnot uh, to mostly to generate hypotheses to test in more representative populations and more representative situations. So then you you move up from there. uh, And oftentimes uh, people will put something even lower on the hierarchy of evidence, which is just like opinion uh, and, you know, stuff that like a a lot of people just generally believe to be true, but maybe doesn't actually have like research on it. And and the thing is like, there's a lot of stuff that still hasn't been researched yet. Uh, And maybe like the only quote unquote evidence you can make resource or um, recourse to is like, eh, people who are generally smart kind of think that this is correct uh, and we don't have data on it. So like, whatever, Uh, that's that's the best we have. We go with that. Um, So anyway, moving up from from basic science stuff, then, then you're often getting into uh, like cross-sectional research. So uh, generally these are studies that are going to have 
large sample sizes and you're mainly looking for associations between things. So, you know, uh, in America, uh, there's a survey that goes around every like five years or so called INHANES, which I should know what that acronym stands for, but I don't because I don't care that much. Um, it's an, one second, I'm going to take a swing at it. National Health and Nutrition something survey, whatever, doesn't matter. Examination survey. Okay, there we go. I, I did better than I thought I would. Um, but anyway, so uh, within Haynes, they, they survey and collect data on tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people and all types of stuff. Um, and in Haynes and, and survey type cross-sectional research like that is... Uh, those are those are rich data sets that researchers can probe in an effort to find associations between different things or, or possibly like moderating variables. And so you can't use that type of research to ascribe causation. So, you know, like, for example, uh, if <laughs> so, th this wasn't in Haynes, but like back in the day, there there was uh, uh, correlational data suggesting that uh, smokers die of lung cancer at higher rates than uh, non-smokers. And so the tobacco industry said like, oh, you can't, you can't ascribe causation there. Uh, that's, that's merely a correlation. Uh, and the thing is, there was plenty of other evidence showing that cigarettes fucking killed you. Um, but that, that actual critique that like, hey, you can't necessarily uh, ascribe causation here. That is, that is a, a fair critique of, um, of cross-sectional research. Uh, so with, with cross-sectional research, you can't necessarily draw causal inferences from it, but it's way easier to collect data at one time point on 10,000 people than it would be to run a randomized control trial on 10,000 people. So it's, it's good for finding relationships between variables and then looking at those relationships and saying like, okay, I think there might be a causal relationship here. So now we can do uh, an actual intervention to see if this relationship, I think maybe causal is actually causal. Um, so much like the basic science research is good for generating hypotheses to test more robustly, uh, very similar with, with cross-sectional research. It's, it's way more data uh, than you would be able to collect in a longitudinal study generally. Um, and so it's, it's also really, really good for generating hypotheses to test in, in more rigorous studies. And then uh, you, could, you could subdivide the next level. Um, so once you get past cross-sectional research, then you have experimental research and, and you could break that down into uh, like randomized control trials, double blind randomized control trials, which is generally considered like the gold standard versus um, like slightly less robust designs. Like, you know, maybe you have uh, a longitudinal study where random group assignment didn't take place, or maybe there's not adequate blinding or something like that. But I, I'm just going to lump it all together and call it experimental research. So in experimental research, you are um, generally implementing an intervention and trying to see if that intervention has the effects that you expect it to. Um, so if you learned about the scientific process in, uh, you know, in, in some sort of like high school science class, uh, experimental research is probably what you learned about. So that's where you 
uh, you know, look at the data that exists. You, well, I mean, I, I guess this applies to other types of science as well, but th this is the type of science most people have in mind when they think of science. So you uh, come up with a hypothesis or a hypothesis or multiple hypotheses. Um, you design some sort of intervention that you think will test your hypothesis. So for example, um, does undulating periodization improve your squat better than linear periodization does? So to test that, you would um, hopefully randomly sample a group of people. In all likelihood, it's going to be a convenient sample, whatever. We just forget about that. Um, so you, you try to draw a, a representative sample uh, from the population you're trying to generalize to. And then you're going to split them into two groups, generally randomize. Sometimes you do kind of a matching approach where you know, if, if you assume that the strongest people aren't going to gain as much strength as the weakest people, maybe you say like strongest person in group A, second strongest person in group B, third strongest person in group B, fourth strongest person in group A to try to match on something. So generally it's either like a matching approach or, or a, a randomization approach. So you split them into two groups. You have one group trained with linear periodization for 12 weeks, say, and the other group trained with undulating periodization for 12 weeks. And you test the results and you basically look to see like on average, did group A improve their squat more than group B? Uh, and, and so that's experimental research. And you can, um, you know, that type of approach can be better or worse, uh, you know, based on how you set it up. So if, uh, if it's the type of thing where subjects can be blinded and assessors can be blinded, that makes it even better. So, you know, you, you can't blind subjects to... Uh, training allocation, like if, if someone is doing undulating periodization, you know, they know what sets and reps are being prescribed to them. So you can't, you can't blind the subjects there. But if you're doing like supplement research, you could give someone say creatine or maltodextrin in pills. And so they're going to look the same. They're not going to smell like anything. People won't know if they're in the, the placebo arm or the, the supplement arm. Um, so, you know, you, you could use a placebo control to, to blind the subjects, and then you could also blind the assessors. So, you know, there's, there's somebody who's going to be collecting the actual outcome variables, uh, and they don't know, like, what pills the subjects are being given. So they're, they're blinded, so that helps control for bias. So, you know, if, if you're dealing with, like, a randomized, uh, placebo-controlled, uh, double blind study. That's like the best sort of experimental evidence you could have, or then it could be quite, quite a bit weaker. So you can have an experimental study where you don't have random group allocation. You don't have blinding. Uh, you know, there there's that, that's still like a relatively robust study design, but there's more, uh, avenues by which bias could creep in, which makes it a little bit weaker. Um, so that's in terms of just a single study, uh, that, that's kind of as high as you get on the hierarchy of evidence. And then you can move even higher. Uh, and you're looking at things like systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Because the thing is, with any single individual study, uh, it can't possibly answer all aspects of a generalized research question. So I use the example of linear versus undulating periodization before. Ultimately, if you're running a single study looking at that, uh, you're, you're writing a training program that is like an archetype of linear periodization. 
you're writing another training program that should archetypally represent undulating periodization. But those two training programs you wrote are fundamentally discrete individual training programs and not representative of every approach someone could take to linear periodization or every approach someone could take to undulating periodization. So, you know, you can't fully answer a research question with a single study. Um, so with a systematic review or meta-analysis, you're, you're pulling together all of the studies that answer the same or a similar research question, um, which will give you a little bit more variety in populations included, in interventions included. Um, and even if you do everything perfectly in a single study, uh, especially if sample sizes are small, you can come up with erroneous results just purely due to like sampling error, measurement error, like whatever. There's um, th there are visualizations that show this pretty well. Like if uh, uh, if you say if there's two variables where they are not associated at all, um, like you know R value of zero, and you take samples of that population with like just ten subjects, and you look at the association. Generally, it's it's not going to be a strong association, and it's going to be non-significant. But you can just just completely randomly find really strong positive associations or really strong negative associations, not from doing anything wrong, but simply due to sampling error. So uh, especially when you're dealing with small sample research, which we almost always are in exercise science, like you can't, you can't put too much stock in a single study, even if it's done really, really well. Uh, so with a systematic review or meta-analysis, you're pulling together all of the results that are relevant to a, a particular research question uh, and analyzing them all together. And that should be the best, most generalizable evidence uh, for a, a particular research topic if the systematic review or meta-analysis are done well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a basic overview of the hierarchy. The, the other thing you mentioned to touch on was, uh, was sample size. One of the things that one of the things that people often deem exercise science for um, are the small sample sizes that are often used in in research. Uh, and one of the so the the line that I often see is like, oh, you know, there's there's twelve subjects per group. How could that possibly generalize to all lifters, right? Like that that's something I see people say a lot. Uh, and the thing is, that's not a completely unfair critique, um, but I don't think it applies in the way that people often think that it does. So uh, <laughs> now we're going to talk about statistics a little bit. I'm excited. People listening to this probably aren't. So um, the type of statistical approach typically used in exercise science uh, is called inferential statistics. Uh, and, and we do things called uh, null hypothesis uh, significance testing. And so basically what you're doing, so you, you probably have heard the terms mean and standard deviation before. Uh, the mean is just the average of whatever measure you're taking. And the standard deviation is a measure of variance about the mean. So, you know, if the average bench press in a group is 125 kilos and then you'll see plus or minus, and then the number after that is the standard deviation. If it's plus or minus five kilos, you can say, oh, most of the people in this group benched similar amounts. Um, 
you go about two standard deviations from the mean, and, and that should give you about 95% of the data uh, in whatever population or, or cohort you're looking at. So if you see 125 plus or minus five, you can say that like, ah, most of the subjects in this group probably bench somewhere between 115 and 135 kilos. So, th so that's a relatively tight range. Uh, versus if you saw 125 plus or minus 25, that's a large standard deviation. And so now you know you have quite a bit more variance in the group. It's probably people benching as low as, you know, maybe 75 kilos and maybe as high as 175. So that's, that's a huge range. Um, so the thing is, with statistical tests, you're more interested in standard error than standard deviation. So you you use the standard deviation to calculate the standard error, and, the, and then the standard error is what's actually fed into the statistical test you're using, whether that be <coughs> whether that be a t-test or an ANOVA or or whatever else that, that's spitting out a p-value for you. And so the way you calculate a standard error is it's the standard deviation divided by the square root of the sample size you're dealing with. And so the sample size comes into it. And basically, if you have a larger sample size, you're dividing by a bigger number. And so that, that gives you a smaller standard, standard error. Whereas if you have a, uh, a smaller sample size, you're dividing by a smaller number. And so that gives you a standard or a larger standard error in relation to your standard deviations. Uh, and then you're, you're basically computing a confidence interval based on the mean and the standard error. And I, I've both gone too far into detail for this to be uh, interesting to most listeners and probably into not enough detail to actually satisfy people who are really into stats. I'm now realizing that this is, this is not good podcasting, but whatever, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Uh, basically, the net effect of all of this is that if you have a small sample size, it is harder to find that two things are different. And so oftentimes, when I see people sharing research, it's like, hey, uh, this study was done. There were 12 subjects per group. They found that thing A was better than thing B. And then people get all up in arms. They're like, how can you say that thing A is better than thing B when, when the sample sizes are small? But the thing is, the fact that the sample sizes were small made it harder to find that those two things were different. And if you had a larger population, um, at least based on like standard statistical theory, assuming that you got a fairly representative population in the sample that you drew, uh, the results should get stronger and more statistically significant as the population size gets bigger. Where the small n critique is the most applicable is when uh, people generally think that two things should be different, should produce separate results, and then a study is run and, and found that the results aren't significantly different, find that they're, they're, that they're too similar to detect a difference. Uh, then in that case, you can use small sample sizes as uh, maybe like a way to push back against that null finding because it, it was like the deck was already kind of stacked against finding a significant difference because the sample sizes were small and you had low statistical power. But uh, if anything, small sample research finding significant differences, assuming that everything was kind of done on the up and up, uh, that should still be a, a robust finding. Uh, the, the statistical parlance is the type one error rate should be constant, which is your risk of false positive. So, you know, if, if two things are significant with a population of eight subjects per group or 800, your type one error rate 
assuming you did everything right and there's nothing funky going on, your type one error rate should be the same regardless. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's probably more than people wanted to know about sample size. Um, yeah, let's, let's move on to something else. <laughs> when you do a journal sweeps, cause you do journal sweeps quite often. Um, yeah. how do you go about doing a journal sweep to, to answer a certain question, especially if, you know, you want to find out something very particular, mm -hmm. how do you go about that? And like, do you have yeah. any tips? So, um, so generally if I'm trying to really, really dig deep into a topic, um, what I will do is generally, so there, there's two different ways this could go. Generally, the, the first thing I'm about to describe is what I do. So if I am aware of some research on, on a subject anyways, I can start with that and uh, basically look to see the terms that, that whatever I'm interested in are being described in, uh, in the research I'm already aware of, and then use that to define search terms to search various databases. Um, if I don't know of any research in a particular area, but I, I assume it's out there, generally I'll just start with Google searches and uh, <laughs> just like Google the terminology I know with PubMed uh, on, on the end of the search query and try to find some research on whatever I'm interested in and then look to see the terms that it's described in in the actual study and use that to define search terms. But basically the first step is coming up with search terms. Um, so a example of that, I, I'm currently working on an article about sticking points. And if you, you know, if you talk to most lifters and it's like, ah, place I fail to squat, that's my sticking point or like the place it gets really slow. Uh, so in the research, generally it's referred to as a sticking region, not a sticking point. And so if you just like did a PubMed query for sticking point resistance training or something like that, you're probably not going to get that many results, but if you you know, read some of the research first, realized that most of the time the term used is sticking region. Uh, you know, you, pub, you, you plug sticking region uh, resistance training or resistance exercise or whatever into PubMed, you'll probably get a lot more results. Um, so yeah, knowing what terms to search, that's kind of the first step. Um, then, well, there, there's an art to putting together a good PubMed query. That's, people don't give a shit about that. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> once you get a good search query though, um, then you start the very fun and exciting part, uh, which is just scrolling through the thousands of results that came up, uh, just screening titles and abstracts and figuring out, you know, which of these, uh, which of these results are relevant to me and which ones aren't. So, uh, a good example of this, I, I did, uh, I did a comprehensive project looking at periodization a few years ago. That's a very annoying thing to find research about because uh, several other fields use the term periodization. Um, so if you're dealing with like geology or archaeology, uh, they talk about like the periodization in terms of like what period like rock layers correspond with. And there's like periodization, I think in like physical chemistry, like talking about like electron motion or something. So if you're looking for periodization research, you know, there's going to be some stuff on resistance training. And then there's going to be a lot of like physical chemistry and archaeology shit that you, that you have to like sift through and, and make sure you get the good stuff. And 
not the stuff you don't care as much about. So that's going to be several hours. Um, you know, hopefully you have a search query that's broad enough to get the vast majority of the studies you care about, but not so broad that you're getting a ton of stuff that you don't care about. Like if you just said like, hey, I'm interested in resistance training research, you just plug resistance training into PubMed, you're probably going to get 40,000 results and that's not going to be useful. You're going to need to spend several weeks going through all of those. So I think a sweet spot is probably somewhere around like two or 3,000 results. Like you, you can go through that in a day. It's not going to be a fun day, but you can do it. Uh, and hope, and that should be a broad enough net to get most of what you want. So then you go through, you pull out the studies, um, you, <laughs> you find the full text of them. Um, if you don't have institutional access, I'm not recommending you break the wall and do this, but I've heard that there's a website called SciHub. Uh, the domains for it frequently get taken down, but if you were to Google for some reason, sci-hub, go to the Wikipedia page, it'll show you which domains are currently live. Uh, you, you could use, theoretically, SciHub to pull up some of these studies that you may not have access to. Again, that's illegal. Don't take this as a recommendation. I don't know of anyone who uses SciHub, but I've heard that some people do. Uh, so you could, you could maybe do that. Uh, search for studies on ResearchGate. If you uh, can't find studies those two different ways, you could like email someone who you know is currently like either in a university or works for a university or just has institutional access just try to get your hands on all of the full text or at least as many of them as you can. Um, the, the one journal where no one fucking has full text for, uh, it's green. It's from the publisher Minerva and it's a uh, journal of sports medicine and physical fitness, I believe. And that that's the worst uh, to find full text for. So I will fully admit there, there have been uh, things that I've wrote where, where I've tried to do the most thorough sweep of the literature I could. And there, there were like, two studies from that journal that I just couldn't get my hands on. So annoying. But generally, if you're resourceful, you can get, you can get papers from pretty much anywhere else. Uh, so you get your hands on as many full texts as you can, then you read them. Um, and then to make sure your, your sweep is complete, you, you see what sources there, like the papers you have are citing um, to relevant research. So generally that's going to be in either the introduction or the discussion where they talk about how their results are similar to or different from other, other results in the field uh, within that specific body of literature. And you basically uh, scan, scan the reference lists and see if they're citing any studies that didn't come up in your initial sweep. And if so, then you, you add those studies in. And so uh, once you've done a search and you've uh, scanned all of the reference lists, there might still be some studies out there in the ether. Like there are, like I, I said, do a PubMed search. Like there's, there are other uh, databases you could search as well that are a little bit broader, but there are uh, some journals um, that aren't going to be indexed in, in any sort of index like that. Uh, and maybe like some of the papers out there just aren't getting cited at all. So, you know, there might still be some stuff out there that you don't come in contact with. But if you go through that process of doing a really good thorough uh, index search uh, and then screening all of the reference lists and pulling in additional stuff, that should get you at least 90, 95% of the relevant research on a topic. Uh, and then it's just a matter of, of uh, reading it all and, and grappling with it and uh, 
you know, trying, trying to get an idea of, of what it's saying. But, but basically, if you want to do a deep dive on a topic, th this is, I think, a mistake a lot of people make. If, you're, if you say like, hey, here's a particular subject or a particular question, and I want to understand it well, um, I think a lot of people are like, okay, um, I'm going to pull up Google Scholar, or I'm going to pull up PubMed, I'm going to do a search, I'm going to find three or four papers and, and just kind of go with that. If you really want to do a deep dive and you really want to understand a topic well, uh, the search process itself is probably going to take at least a day or two if you're working efficiently uh, and then really diving into everything and, and understanding it on like a deep and intimate level. That's probably going to take you a week or two. So that's it, it is. Um, if you want to get really in depth on the research for a particular topic, you should uh you should expect it to be a commitment. Yeah, <laughs> there have been a couple articles that I wrote. Um, I know the one your I wrote recovery article. In recovery, yeah, that yeah, one. that was that was a good fucking article. That's that might Thanks, be the dude. best. Uh, that might be the best recovery article I've I've seen. Thanks, man. Yeah, that honestly freaking took me forever. And and the thing was actually it was so funny because. If it when, didn't, I was going to be concerned. <laughs> be like, what the fuck's wrong with me? Yeah, if, well, if, you were, if you were like, yeah, I, I ripped that off in two days. I was going to walk into traffic. No, I find a lot of those really big ones take me about a month. And yeah. the reason why it takes me about a month is because I am constantly nervous that I'm going to get called out by way smarter people. So um, one of the things that I'll usually do is if I want to write an article... I actually make sure that I do not read anyone else's articles because mm -hmm. I don't want to steal anything. And so what I do is like, I'll write the article and, and do all that stuff. And maybe I'll reach out to some people and be like, Hey, do you have any like specific resources or whatever? But I get all that stuff. I read it, I write it, and then I'll go and read everyone else's stuff and see mm -hmm. if I missed anything or if I misunderstood anything. And I find that that's usually pretty helpful, but like, yeah, I know in the beginning for sure, and you've definitely done this in very polite ways. I actually did this recently <laughs> with the, uh, the the IQ uh, papers you sent me. Um, I've, I've had a couple people correct me, <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> but I, no. I also find that like people, people are also really nice about it as well. Like mm -hmm. People who actually genuinely care about putting out good content are usually really nice about like how they'll approach people about it. And so that's definitely made me a lot more, uh, a lot more chill with like the process and just kind of putting stuff out there. I, I think that has, uh, I think that's definitely changed over the years. So, um, oh man, back in, when did I start writing? Like 2011, 2012, 2013, thereabouts. There, there was a, uh, a much sharper edge to the uh, like quote unquote evidence-based fitness community. And I think that's largely because it was still such a subculture. And I mean, like there, there's still, there's still a lot of people who are just like, ah, these, these fucking nerds think that you can learn, learn from studies instead of from the iron. I only learn from the iron, like, eh, whatever, like there, there's still stuff like that out there. That's fine. Um, but that, that used to be like the zeitgeist of the entire fitness industry. And just like the, the whole concept of, um, like <laughs> trying to learn from research instead of 
you know, just ask the biggest guy at the gym. Um, you know, th- there, there was definitely respect for that in like sports science, but in like powerlifting, bodybuilding, nah, forget about it. Um, and so I, I do think a lot of the, the like early, like pioneers and kind of like online evidence-based fitness did have like more of a chip on their shoulder because they had eaten so much shit for so long, <laughs> um, that, uh, yeah, if, if someone else, if someone was coming in and, and trying to play the same game but doing it poorly, I, I think that uh, some some folks were like a little bit quicker on the trigger. Um, but yeah, n- now I think the the community has definitely chilled out a lot, um, and people are are more likely to extend a lot more grace uh, if they if they see a an, an interpretation out there that's uh, maybe a swing and a miss. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is like the intention. Like I'll I'll see guys like V Shred. Who just constantly pushed do you know who vishred is i became aware of him last week actually yeah just like dude i i don't think i don't think he's a real person I, I i think this is mike Chang all over again <laughs> no so do, do you know about <laughs> i do mike remember Chang mike Chang. Chang. yeah yeah do you know that story though? all of his guys uh maybe not mike Chang was not six-pack shortcuts like th- there were there were money men behind the scenes that came up with like the, the line of like workouts and products and the whole marketing plan. And Mike Chang was the face of the operation. Like they hired him as an actor to do gig work to promote their, their products and their, their whole system. Um, but like oh, Mike really? Chang, he wasn't even a coach. Right. Yeah. Like, so, so oh, Mike wow. Chang, Mike Chang was the face who, people went after but like he wasn't six pack shortcuts he was an employee of a company that he was not an owner of um i really think v shred is the exact same situation i mean it makes sense like the guy's got a crazy following and some of the stuff that i've heard him say is just like he's like don't eat broccoli it'll make you sterile and i'm like what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he he doesn't strike me as someone who is smart enough to put together that successful of a company. Because what he's theoretically an expert in, what he should know about is fitness stuff, and he clearly doesn't. Um, so, so it's either he's like a, a marketing savant who just happens to be an idiot in fitness, but he's like, ah, whatever, like, I look good, like, th- these are the folks I can fleece. Or he is as dumb as he seems but he's like the, the model hired by actual smart people behind the scenes. I, I think that's the situation. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, maybe I, to be honest, I, I never even knew about the whole Mike Chang thing, but uh, yeah, that would make sense. I mean, th- those are usually the people like I'm very hesitant to call anyone out. I think he's the only person I've ever called out. And I've only ever done it twice. I've been a coach for a fairly long time because I'm always like, I'm always worried that eventually I'm going to say something stupid. And I mean, I feel like I do say stupid things every now and then. <laughs> and people are usually pretty nice to me about it. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I should probably extend all olive branch as well. Um, but anyways, to, to kind of get back on topic, um, what, what are some of the red flags that you look for when reading a paper? I know you've called out a, a couple of uh, researchers in particular, and then a couple of studies as well for, for some of the, uh, the inconsistencies in the data that was presented. So what do you look for? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you know, so there's um, some of the stuff that I spot is stuff that anyone could spot. And some of the stuff I spot is stuff that theoretically anyone could spot, but you, you'd have to invest uh, more time and effort than is reasonable into spotting it. Um, so for example, um, if here's a little plug, if anyone listening to this is a, a subscriber of mass monthly applications and strength sport, uh, there is a section in our reviews. It doesn't show up for every article cause it's not always relevant. Uh, but if we notice things in the methodology of a study or in the, uh, the statistical analysis, that's kind of iffy. And, you know, not saying bad, not saying fraudulent, but just stuff that like doesn't make sense on some level, or if they took a statistical approach that that's clearly um, incorrect for the type of data they have, then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll call that out and point out, say like, hey, you know, these, these were their findings, or th these what they, here's what they said they found, and here's how they interpreted it. Um, but here are like, clear reasons why that's incorrect. Um, so for an example of that, and, and so that's, that's kind of like the, the basic level stuff that anyone could notice if they had any sort of statistical chops and also read papers really closely. Um, so an example of that is, uh, uh, let me try to think of the detail. Yeah, yeah, so I, I remember. So for one of the studies that I reviewed uh, this month for the issue of mass that's going to come out in April, um, they were looking at strength gains in people who were doing like regular squats uh, versus people doing pin squats. And they reported uh, that for, and, and so they tested regular squats and pin squat 1RMs pre and post training in both groups. Um, the pin squat group, they reported that there was a statistically significant within group improvement in both traditional squat and pin squat 1RM. And for the traditional squat group, they reported a significant increase in traditional squat 1RM, but uh, a, a nominal increase, but not statistically significant increase in pin squat 1RM. And so they, they report this. Um, and I say, well, that's interesting because there's also a figure in the paper that shows all of the individual data points. So all of the pre-training maxes and post-training maxes for the subjects in that group uh, and like lines connecting them. So I know like which numbers go with individual subjects. And so you can use a, a program called Webplot Digitizer, which lets you basically screenshot the figure, align the axes, click on the data points and extract the data from the figure. Uh, and so from there, I was able to recreate their statistical analysis, like what they said they did in the study. Um, and they, they reported that there wasn't a significant increase for pin squat 1RM in the traditional squat group. Uh, but when you actually do the test that they said they did, it was significant with a p-value of like 0. 0.000006, uh, which is notably lower than the tra traditional significance cutoff of p less than 0.05. Um, so I don't know what they did. I don't know why they failed to find that significant within group change, but they did. So, you know, th that doesn't necessarily mean like, I don't think that there was any sort of malice 
Uh, generally, <laughs> researchers want to find <laughs> significant changes. I think whoever whoever ran the stats just messed something up. Like maybe they clicked the wrong button. Uh, maybe there was like an error in their code. Like, I don't know. But something they reported in the study, the lack of within uh, significant within group change was wrong. It was flatly wrong. And, you know, I could I could recreate and show why it was wrong. Um, and so like there, there's a fair amount of that that you can that you can catch just if you read something closely. And when you read enough research, you kind of develop an eye for it. Um, like I have a pretty good feel for like when numbers feel good or feel bad. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of that is just from, like, I, I think it's almost the same way that like a, a strength coach would assess squat technique, you know, like uh, before you've actually like looked at someone's technique closely and broken it down, you know, moment at a time and, and really, really dug into it. If you just walk into a weight room and you see someone squatting and they have a dodgy squat, it's going to catch your eye. You know what I mean? Um, like before you like fully analyze why it's dodgy, it just jumps out at you. You're like, oh, that's a dodgy squat, you know? Um, so I, I think you develop kind of a sense for just like when numbers seem weird. Uh, and then, you know, you, you can actually dig into it and, and thoroughly analyze it to figure out like, is my hunch correct? Is it incorrect? Is there actually something amiss here? Um, so that's, that's some of the stuff. And, and that's the type of stuff, which again, if people read studies closely, you should be able to pick stuff like that out. Um, some of the other stuff that I've noticed, and I, I think you're, uh, you're talking about um, some some work from a, a graduate student uh, who, was, who was very prolific that we put out a white paper about, which I'm not gonna talk about in detail because uh, they may or may not have, have threatened litigation. So I'm not gonna say this person's name, whatever. Uh, you, could, you could just uh, check out my ResearchGate profile to see if there's a particular white paper that you might be interested in. Anyway, um, for, for that, that particular instance, um, there was a bit of intuition that went into thinking like, oh, okay, there, there might be something weird going on here. Uh, and then there was also a lot, a lot of elbow grease that went into it. So in that particular instance, the thing that tipped me off that something was kind of weird was there were results reported that were both well outside anything that I've, that I'd seen, uh, coaching and also well outside anything that I'd seen reading research before. So, so one thing to note when you're reading research, I guess, is, uh, oftentimes you see like rates of strength gains that are considerably higher than you would see maybe coaching your own athletes. And a lot of that, I think just relates to the fact that like a lot of the folks who are recruited for studies, uh, might have some training experience, but aren't like super well-trained. Uh, and maybe the training they're doing on their own isn't particularly challenging. And you say what you will about the, the training protocols used in research, but oftentimes they're very challenging. Like they're, they're hard shit. Um, so oftentimes like people gain strength pretty quickly, um, which is also probably somewhat contributed to by how short the studies were. Like, I, I think it would slow down a lot if studies were, you know, 24 to 32 weeks instead of eight to 12 or 16 a lot of the time. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I saw some, some strength results that uh, made me stop and say like, oh shit, 
these these people got really fucking strong really quick. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, and then <laughs> I started poking around a little bit more. I was like, okay, I recognize some of these names. And I noticed before that some of the results did look a little bit weird to me. So for example, uh, in one of the other studies that, that I'd seen this person uh, with, with their name on it, um, they had uh, groups of men doing leg press, 10 rep maxes, and the uh, reported 10 RMs were something like, you know, 175 kilos plus or minus four kilos. So that, that's a really tight range. And like, I've read enough research to know what sorts of ranges to expect. Um, like when it comes to, you know, just like pulling a random sample from a population, like you, if you just went to a random gym and you said like, Hey, I'm going to get 40 people to do a 10 rep max leg press. You're not going to see all of those 10 RMs fall within like a 15, 20 kilo range. So I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. Let's look at some more of this stuff. And, um, there, there were other people involved with this as well, obviously. Like once, once I started note, noting some weird stuff, got up with some other folks, we, we all dug into it. Um, and, and there were just like a lot of things like that, that that we could then like statistically quantify by how much does this differ from, from the rest of the literature. And that process basically came down to finding a random sample of similar resistance training studies on similar populations and, and basically looking to see like, Hey, all of the shit we can quantify, how, how far outside the norm is this stuff we're looking at? Uh, then one of the co-authors of some of those papers, uh, got up, we got up with him. He got involved. He shared some of the data sets with us. And then we found some weird patterns in the raw data. And like, if you are just like reading research, you probably wouldn't be able to do that. Like most studies don't have open data. These studies didn't have open data. Uh, we were very lucky that one of the co-authors was willing to share the data with us. And, and that basically allowed us to look into some other things on like a, a pure probability level. Um, so for example, in, in one of the studies, uh, they were looking at changes in flexed arm circumference and there were uh, I think there were like 11 subjects in each group or something like that. And in one group, uh, there was no evidence that within the data sheet, the, the subjects had been sorted by change in flexed arm circumference. Like they, they all appeared to be numbered the same way that they would have been when the data was collected. And in one of the groups, uh, flexed arm circumference changed by uh, 0.7 centimeters, 0.7 centimeters, 0.7 centimeters, 0.7 centimeters, 0.7 centimeters, 0.9 centimeters, 0.9 centimeters, 0.9 centimeters, 0.9 centimeters. And then the other group changed by 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0.8, 0.1, 1, or 1.1, 1.1, 1.1, 1.1, 1.1. So like within both groups, there were only two values by which flexed arm circumference changed. And they were both like runs that were arranged low to high and there were only like two discrete numbers. And so you, you can, you can quantify how unlikely that is just using basic probability theory. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, that's the type of shit we were able to get into once we had the raw data. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, like that's, that's the type of stuff where it's, it's me probably going overboard uh, and most people, like I, I wouldn't expect most people to note stuff like that. Um, 
And even if you note that like something seems weird, that whole project, there were like six of us working on it. And there, I mean, conservatively two, 300 hours of work went into actually like finding comparable studies and like really probing all of that stuff. So like, yeah, there's, there's some dodgy stuff out there, yeah, potentially dodgy. I'm not, I'm not leveling any accusations. I don't want to get sued. Uh, but there's, there are some numbers out there reported in the research that, that may be odd, um, that maybe you wouldn't necessarily notice or be able to quantify just how odd they were, unless, you, unless you're like me. And, and this is like interpreting research is basically your full-time job. So can you touch on... Um like some considerations to be aware of when trying to take research and apply it to like real world scenarios. Right. So for instance, like some of the research on strength training on different mm -hmm. forms of periodization, whatever, and how you might apply that to your own training or your athletes or, or whatever. Uh, sure. So I, I think that, Hmm. So, okay. First, I think it's worth considering uh, what type of study you're looking at and what you necessarily want to do with it. So, for example, um, if you're interested in recovery modalities, say, that is the type of stuff that you can probably apply one-to-one. -one. So, for example, if a study finds that the use of lower body compression garments with a I don't, I don't know what the normal unit, well, I know what the units are. I don't know what like the magnitudes are, but whatever. Let's just say a, a compressive pressure of uh, 40 millimeters of mercury um, is, is sufficient to improve like the, the recovery of force output in people after resistance exercise or something like that. That's the type of finding that you could probably just... Um, anticipate that you can apply one-to-one. -one. So, you know, if you're looking for something that might improve your, your lower body recovery, you're having trouble recovering from your squat training and you see like, oh, there, there's some cool stuff on compression garments. You could look at a study like that and say like, okay, how much compressive force did the compression garments use? Um, when were they applied after training? How long were they applied for? And, and you, can, you can probably just apply those findings one-to-one, -one, right? Um, versus something like a resistance training study where, so to, to think of a recent example, um, there was a study looking at uh, tricep growth after just uh, skull crushers, just bench press, or a combination of bench press and skull crushers. Um, and, and basically what, it, what they found was that the bench press uh, did better than the skull crushers at growing the lateral head of the triceps, but the middle and long head of the triceps, uh, grew better from the skull crushers. And so for well-rounded growth of all three heads of the triceps, the combination of bench press and skull crushers was better than either just doing skull crushers or just doing bench press. And so, uh, if you look at that, like that, that's an applicable research finding, like it, that probably generalizes to, you know, for, uh, muscles with, with multiple heads and maybe, you know, a mixture of monoarticular and biarticular muscles within the muscle group, which, you know, would apply to the triceps, apply to the quads, apply to the hamstrings. So, you know, like the, the, it probably does generalize a little bit. 
Uh, might, might not be a bad idea to use a combination of single joint and multi-joint exercises to make sure that you're targeting all of the heads of those muscles. Um, so that, that is kind of a broad generalized finding, you know, it, it may not apply beyond the triceps. I think it probably does, but you, you could maybe take that concept and apply and generalize it. Or if you want it to be a little bit more, uh, if you didn't want to generalize it as much and you wanted to keep it focused on the study at hand, you might generalize to, okay, I want to grow all three heads of my triceps. I see that there's quantitative results showing if I do both bench press and tricep extensions, that's going to do a good job of growing all three heads of my triceps. Okay. I, I now have the, the basic bare bones outline of a triceps program. I'm going to do both bench press and skull crushers. Cause I don't know if this is going to apply to other exercises, but I can see here it applies to bench press and skull crushers. So that's kind of like a, a small generalization. And then if you didn't want to generalize it at all, what you could say is, okay, what exact training program did they do in this study? Uh, which I want to say it was uh, three sets of eight to 12 reps to failure of bench press and triceps extensions twice per week. If you didn't want to generalize it at all, you could say like, okay, uh, here's my triceps training program. I'm going to do three sets of bench press and three sets of skull crushers to failure eight to 12 reps twice per week. And so then you're not generalizing at all. Um, and I basically think that ultimately you're, you're almost always going to be generalizing a little bit and that the, that there's some degree of art to it <laughs> um, where like, cause if you're not generalizing at all, Basically, unless you're going to be using the exact same training programs used in studies, uh, you shouldn't even bother reading research because like if, if, as soon as you start saying like, okay, like here's a general finding, but like, I, you know, I, I want to do some other style of training. Like th at that point you are doing some degree of generalization. So, uh, yeah, like something like recovery stuff or like supplement stuff, you could probably use like the exact timing and dosing protocols used in those studies, but like training stuff generally there is going to be some degree of generalization there. And, and it's kind of a question of just how much of it are you comfortable with? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that there's, I think that that, I think that's more of a personal comfort decision type question than anything. So uh, speaking for myself personally, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with like, quite a bit of generalizing because from reading a lot of research, I found that like a lot of stuff generalizes pretty well. Um, so an example of this is uh, at this point, it's, it's basically settled that as long as you're, as you're training to failure or pretty close to failure, um, hypertrophy per set is pretty similar if you're training with like, uh, like moderate rep ranges. So, you know, sets of anywhere between like maybe six and 15 reps versus really high reps. So, you know, sets of 20 to 40, give or take, uh, if you match on a per set basis, uh, and you're, you're training to failure, pretty close to failure, you're going to see pretty similar growth from training in both of those general intensity ranges. At, at this point, there's, there's a lot of research backing that up. Uh, but that wasn't the case when I was like first coming into the fitness industry. Um, there was a muscle protein synthesis study by Bird in like 2011 
uh, that said like, ah, maybe, maybe muscle protein synthesis is similar after moderate load and low load training. People were like, ah, that's just an acute muscle protein synthesis study. Probably don't put too much stock in that. And honestly, I agree with that. Probably don't put too much stock in acute muscle protein synthesis studies. Uh, then a study by Mitchell came out, I believe in 2012, 2013, showing that uh, training to failure at 30% of 1RM versus 80% of 1RM with unilateral knee extensions uh, produced similar quad growth in untrained subjects. And uh, people are like, oh, well, that, that's interesting. But like, yeah, it's, it's just unilateral quad training and it's untrained subjects. Like, eh, no way that's going to apply to squats or bench press or something like that. And then uh, it, it basically then more and more research was done. Uh, there was a study by Morton uh, with, with people with some degree of training experience comparing uh, training at 80% versus 50% of 1RM, finding pretty similar hypertrophy with both of those. Uh, then there was a study by Schoenfeld comparing training at, uh, I believe, 8 to 10RM loads versus 25 to 35% 1RM loads with, again, like decently well-trained subjects. Uh, then there was a bicep training study in, in male gymnasts who uh, have pretty fucking huge biceps and uh, it found, again, similar growth between high load and low load training. So, so at this point, like, it's pretty well established that what we found in untrained subjects did generalize pretty well to uh, folks with, with a pretty high degree of training status. Um, and there are instances where that hasn't really panned out. Uh, so an example there is if you look at how uh, squat depth affects translation to sprinting and jumping ability. There was a paper, I believe from Robbins and colleagues of memory serves back in the day, uh, comparing deep squats versus half squats in untrained folks. And uh, I, they looked at a lot of things, but they looked at uh, improvements in jump height and improvements in, in sprint times. And they found that deep squats were better. And then in 2016, there was a study by Ray uh, looking at the same thing, but in I think elite or like pretty high level track and field athletes. Um, and they found that half and quarter squats did better than full squats did. Um, so, and, and that probably relates to kind of what is constraining performance in those two populations. Like untrained folks, if you put muscle on their frame, <laughs> they're probably going to perform better in most respects. Whereas for elite level athletes, they're probably plenty muscular, like they're, they're generally pretty muscular already. And so it's more about like, what is a more specific stimulus that's going to transfer better to performance and half and half and quarter squats match the joint angles of, of sprinting and jumping a little better. Um, so yeah, like sometimes stuff doesn't generalize, but I, I found that like generally stuff uh, translates to different populations better than one would often expect. So like, I, I'm generally fairly chill with, um, you know, not, not stating confidently that studies on one population will generalize to another, but using that as, as a baseline assumption and other people are, are less comfortable with that. And I think that, I think both pers perspectives are entirely fair. And I think it's, uh, I, I think it's more based on, on your experience and just general comfort level, uh, and how, how averse you are to potentially being wrong than, you know, necessarily a, any sort of like hard and fast criterion that is objectively right that all, all people must adhere to. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, 
I've, uh, I guess it's pretty similar to even just different coaches and how they, how they approach certain exercise selection. Like I've heard Joe Sullivan say he doesn't uh, see any value in doing deficit deadlifts for, for sumo. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of success with it with my athletes. And so Mm -hmm. it's just like kind of how you're implementing it in the bigger picture. So yeah, that makes sense. And I think oh, let, let me let too. me toss something else out there as well because I, I I wanted to say something and then I got I distracted myself I rambled too much um, so I, I think when it comes to implementing research findings for clients I think that um, I think most of the value just comes from like helping you establish a good baseline because ultimately if you're coaching someone you're not training the mean of a population. You're training an individual and different people respond to training differently. They respond to different exercises differently. They respond to different approaches to training differently. And so ultimately what you're doing in science most of the time is you're looking for what does pretty well for most people on average, or what does better than something else for most people on average. Um, And so I think that research can give you a really, really good starting point when it comes to training recommendations uh, and and having an idea of the sorts of things and the sorts of mixes of variables that that will produce pretty decent results for most people most of the time. And so I think it's good for establishing that starting point. But but past that, I mean, I I think it mostly just comes down to experience and skill as a coach. and uh, I, I think research does can come into the come into the process in other ways. So, you know, talked about recovery modalities, talked about supplementation stuff like that, that's those are the types of things where you can look at research and uh, assume things are, are probably going to translate pretty well. But when it comes to training stuff like, you know, if if someone uh, someone hits a wall, you know, they're. Uh, doing training that on paper looks like it should be effective, but they're not really making progress. And then you're deciding like, okay, what, what variables should I tweak? Uh, and, you know, how, how should I amend this program to, to hopefully get some progress going again? Um, I think at that point, you can even look at some research and say like, okay, uh, there, there are two options I'm rolling over in my mind, uh, ways that I might tweak this program. Uh, if, if one of the two approaches is supported by a fair amount of research and the other one isn't, you know, if, if you're going down one of those forks in the road, you probably want to go down the one that has the more research supporting it. Um, so, you know, it can come into the process there. Um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, in terms of like actually on the training side of things, um, applying research directly to the process, I, I think most... I think most of that uh, comes down to just like figuring out and establishing good baselines to start working from uh, that you're inevitably going to get away from once you get a better idea of what that individual does best with and responds best to. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And just to kind of piggyback on that as well, like I think one thing for me anyways, that really helped with, uh, just reading different papers was kind of paralleling, like, I guess superimposing that over my own experience and being like, Hey, this paper is saying that, you know, 0.2 grams of protein is the same as 0.9 grams of protein per pound of body weight. That's probably not true. Cause when I eat 0.2, I lose a bunch of weight and I feel my joints <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. or, or when 
whatever else, right? And so the, I feel like you can overlap quite a bit of, over just like kind of practical experience and like what other people just say generally. And even like, even in a lot of cases, like what, what the kind of gym bros will say as well, um, there's usually at least like a half truth in a lot of the things that they do. In a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff, there's no truth, but <laughs> in a lot of the stuff, there's still a lot of half truth. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely f- feel like practical experience is, is pretty valuable, especially when you are kind of looking into some of these things as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's a pretty important distinction as well that you made about uh, the utility of research and like what it can be used for and what it probably shouldn't be used for. Like you're probably not going to really find anything that's going to be like, Hey, what this guy needs in particular is accommodating resistance. Yeah. You know? So. Um, oh yeah. I mean, if there is ever a study that's like, okay, what is the best training approach to improve the bench press for people who fail at lockout and they, <laughs> you know, re- recruit a sample of a hundred subjects who all fail their bench presses at lockout and they try like six and they randomize them into like six different groups who take like different approaches to fixing the the problem. And like one of the groups is clearly the best. I'm like, okay. You could say like, okay, uh, you fail your bench press at lockout. We have an evidence-based solution to that until then. Like it's, you know, you're going on vibes, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of just like, Hey, what, what have I seen work in the past? Cause you're not going to have a citation for that. And oftentimes uh, <laughs> what makes me think that someone <laughs> might be a little full of shit and not understand the limits of using research is when they're just like, ah, yeah, uh, every part of this program, it's, it's an evidence-based program. And like, here's 30 citations uh, to, to demonstrate to you why it's the best. It's like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's literally not how research works. Because I mean, like, even even something like that, like, okay, you're you're gonna take, uh, you know, it, it, let's say you're periodizing, you're you're periodizing uh, uh, your um, the the program you're using, and you're recommending the use of velocity based training, which there's. Some, some studies indicating that, that that might produce better strength gains than like percent one RM type load prescription. Um, and you're using uh, like research citations about the volume being used. So, so you know, those, those are three things going into your program, uh, all, you know, very reasonable in isolation. And you say like, okay, here are my citations to explain why we're using this periodization style why we're using velocity-based training and why volume is what it is in this study. Well, you get, you're going to run into problems there because like one, uh, I mean, <laughs> I've read all of the, the velocity-based training research that's out there, like all of the longitudinal stuff. They haven't tried every possible periodization approach with velocity-based training yet. Like most of that still, like most of the periodization literature uses, uh, load assignment using percentage of one RM. So can you necessarily assume that the periodization style that works the best with percent one RM based loading is also still going to work the best with VVT? Maybe, maybe not. Hard to say. That study hasn't been done. And then if you're doing VVT, you're probably not having people training to failure because that to some degree defeats the purpose, like a a lot of the benefits you can get from velocity-based training. And especially if you're citing a particular study to 
explain why we're doing velocity-based training. Those, those studies don't involve training to failure. Usually they're uh, terminating sets after your velocity drops like a certain percentage from the first rep. Um, but then most of the studies you'd cite to back up a particular volume recommendation, almost all of the volume studies do involve training to failure. So, you know, you, you could say like, here are three things in isolation that have evidence to support them, but then you put them together and the combination of those three factors, you're not going to be able to point to a study where all of those three things are present. You know what I mean? Um, and like, you know, then you run into the question of generalizability again. Like, can you assume that a given level of volume that's appropriate when people are training to failure is also appropriate when people are training five reps from failure? Probably not. Uh, especially if someone's interested in hypertrophy and they're training super far from failure, they'll probably need to do quite a few more sets to compensate. So like, yeah, you, you can't, you can't write a training program and say that like, this is 100% based on research because like, as soon as you do, you're going to run into contradictions like that. Like it's, it, it's more about getting a bearing. Like I, uh, an analogy that I use is it's the difference between a map and a compass. So I think a lot of people who aren't particularly sophisticated when it comes to reading research and applying research is they treat it like a map where they say like, okay, this, this is the Holy script. And if I do what it says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to get good results. Whereas I think it's, it's more useful when you treat it like a compass, like it, it points you in the correct general direction. Uh, but you have to use your skill as a navigator to find your way from there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anyone really talk about research as far as program design goes. I don't doubt that it happens. I've, I've heard a lot of, like, I remember I posted a couple things and Every, I don't really get too many trolls, probably because I don't have like a huge following. Mm -hmm. um, every now and then I'll get something, but they'll be like, I don't know, they'll just like throw up a PubMed link and be like, what about this? I'm like, what about yeah. it? What are you talking about? Or like <laughs> the best, the best one I've ever heard was like, they said something about, because I, I made a post about carbohydrates saying like, here's why they're important for performance. And then they were like, carbohydrates do this this and this and are actually toxic or something like that <laughs> update update your facts or update your position or something like that and i was like oh okay <laughs> but uh i don't usually yeah i don't think i've ever heard anyone talking about um programming in particular it's usually like nutrition and stuff that tends to be a little bit more debated at least what i'm what i'm exposed to but uh yeah, I, I don't know I, I see a lot of it but it's it's probably just a question of like who you follow, what circles you run yeah. in. Yeah. Honestly, I don't follow anyone. I, I follow like 300 people and all of them are either researchers or like big lifters because I can't handle like all the negativity <laughs> or all the booty shots that a lot of girls do. So I'm just like, I'm out. Um, yeah. I, uh, I mostly just follow like pet accounts and meme accounts, man, at, at least on like Instagram. Yeah, I like I had my first dog not too long ago. And I was like, I didn't realize that I was capable of more than like two emotions. And now I have at <laughs> least three or four. And so I follow so many like pitbull accounts now. And I'm just like, I'll open up my phone, be pissed off. And I see a pitbull just like smiling like a freaking idiot. And I'm just like, Oh, but um, anyways, <clears throat> I'm a man. I drink beer, and I have hair on my chest. So uh, we're, we're coming up to that. Uh, about an, almost an hour and a half mark. 
So um, actually, why, why don't you tell everyone, I know you mentioned it previously, but why don't you just mention uh, Mass because that is a really great resource. I was signed up for that for well over a year. Um, I usually like to kind of cycle through them. And so by the time I come back to Mass, you guys will have like several, several editions. So um, yeah, why don't you plug that real quick and then just kind of tell people where, you're, where they can find you. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, MASS stands for Monthly Applications and Strength Sport. That's a uh, monthly research review that uh, I put out along with Eric Trexler, Eric Helms, and Mike Zordos. We, uh, we, we tag team it. Um, and yeah, we, we look for the research that's going to be the most useful and applicable to lifters and coaches. Um, you know, break it down, try to, try to give practical, ac- actionable takeaways from it. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, other places you can find me, uh, I'm on Instagram at Greg Knuckles. That's, uh, that's my personal account. Uh, post some lifting stuff, post a lot of food content, occasionally post pictures of my dog. Um, for actual fitness stuff, probably the, the best place to follow us is, uh, I can't remember if it's at Stronger by Science or at official Stronger by Science. I think we now have the Stronger by Science handle. So it's, it's just search for Stronger by Science. That's us. Um, that, that's where we post the actual fitness content. Um, I'm active on Facebook kind of, uh, again, I don't really talk about fitness that much on Facebook anymore. Uh, and if you want free content, you can, um, go to sbspod.com to check out the stronger by science podcast that I am the, uh, temporary guest co-host on. Uh, and you can check out our written stuff at strongerbyscience.com. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go give him a follow. Check out his podcast. Um, he's got tons of great, great information and material, and uh, hopefully he doesn't get kicked off the podcast in the next little bit. <laughs> Greg, man, thanks so much for jumping on here and talking about this uh, really boring slash really interesting <laughs> topic. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. I think it's fun. Uh, I tried to talk about it with enough excitement to fool other people into thinking that it's fun and exciting. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely find there's not enough information about this type of stuff. And I've had enough people reach out to me about it that I feel like there's definitely a need. It just needs to be a little bit more accessible. And I don't know that people are necessarily ready to read about it right off the bat, but I think something like this could be a really great primer to get them into some, uh, some more, you know, nitty gritty information, but yeah, man, thanks for jumping on dude. It was awesome. Here's a pre plug. Uh, we're actually working on a research interpretation book. Um, Eric Trexler is, is the person heading that up. We're, 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 we're aiming for it to be the type of thing where it, it will be more accessible, both in terms of language and length than just like digging into a textbook on statistics and, and, uh, like research design. Uh, so that, Hopefully should be out in the next few months. Uh, I think the, the first draft is about done. Um, so once that's out, hopefully it'll be, uh, it'll be good and useful to people. Um, sorry, sorry for the additional plug that was unsanctioned, but, uh, no, go hard, man. That's awesome. That'll, that'll be really interesting. I'll be, uh, I'd be really interested to seeing what that, uh, what that looks like once it's out, man. I think so too. I haven't read it yet. Uh, we're, we're, we're splitting it. <laughs> we're splitting them like 80, 20. Uh, oh, Trex okay, is just okay, about done enough. with his yeah. 80%. And, 
you know, since, since he, he came up in academia and he's been doing the whole fitness industry thing for like the last, uh, like 18 months, give or take. Uh, and he's like, Greg, you've, you've stewed in these waters longer than I have. So, um, he's like, he is my primary resource when it comes to this stuff. Like, I, I think I have pretty good grasp of it, but he has a much better grasp. Um, so yeah, he, he's doing the, the lion's share of the work on that book. And then basically I'm going to go through it and make sure that it's, it's, uh, legible and understandable to a lay audience and, and kind of add some color to it, add some uh, examples of debates and disagreements that have have been, you know, in, in the community in recent years that will help kind of like anchor it for the readers. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't read it yet either. Um, but I, I mean, I, I know the work he does, so I'm, I'm sure it's going to be excellent. That's awesome, man. All right, brother. Take care. Yeah, have a good one.